Well, hello everyone. Welcome to today's special virtual roundtable on equality, diversity, and inclusion. Uh, we're specifically looking to answer several questions today around how to initiate conversations about race and racism, as well as defining and exhibiting ally on your campus and practical steps to take to impact EDI via campus recreation. I'm Heather Hartman. I'm gonna be your host and I'm the editor of Campus Rec Magazine. I'll be working our way through all those questions. I'll be uh, asking our panelists to speak in and I'll be working through all of that. Speaking of our panelists, I wanna introduce them today. It's a huge, huge, wonderful thing that they are here. Um, they're spending an hour on their Friday afternoon. So thank you so much to them. Just wanna introduce them. We have Jocelyn Hill, the Director of Recreational Sports and Fitness at American University. Nikki High Street, the Associate Director for Recreation Programming at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. We have Kevin Marbury, the Vice President for Student Life at the University of Oregon. Maureen McGonigal, or Mo, the Director of Campus Recreation Centers LLC at DePaul University. And last but not least, we have Myron Washington-White, the Director of Athletics at St. Cicero of Alexandria School. Woo! I got it. <laughs> and huge thank you to Myram. Uh, he's been a big help in putting this together today um, and getting these, roping these panelists in. So thank you, Myram, for all you've done. So how this works, how this works real quick is we'll take about the first half of this round table uh, to answer those three uh, predetermined questions uh, on those topics of EDI that I mentioned previously. After that, we will have time from you all, our audience, to answer questions. So to our listeners, there's a control panel on the side of your screen. Please feel free to submit your questions via that control panel at any time of the round table. And as soon as we get through opening up those questions, or as soon as we get through answering those questions, we'll open up to questions from you all. Um, we will st stick to an hour long because I know we all have things to do. Uh, so just stay tuned in case we don't get through all the questions. We might be able to get them answered post roundtable. And I did want to mention if you are enjoying these roundtables, we're going to be having more because the Campus Rec Leadership Summit has gone virtual this year. And it will be happening September 15th through the 16th. We'll be having five different roundtables that will highlight various discussions from mental health to um, inclusive programming, and we'll have a lot of educational content from our partners as well. So if you want to register, campusrecmag.com is the place to go. All right, we got to just dive in. There's there's so much to say. So um, let's go ahead and do the first question. Uh, first off, we have, how do we initiate and in having conversations about race and racism on campus and in campus recreation? We, we decided to start with a light question today. Um, I'm kidding, that was sarcasm. So let's go ahead, Jocelyn, would you go ahead and speak uh, to that question? Sure, Heather, thank you very much for having me and uh, thank everyone who's out there listening. Um, and hopefully we can um, help you um, kind of work through this process. So um, one of the things at AU, we, um, we experienced a, a situation back in 2016 where we had a, um, a young lady who was our SGA president, a black young lady, the first black female. And uh, we had a series of issues, things that went on on campus. And, um, and that kind of brought to light a lot that the, we felt the university was not doing. And so uh, with our new president, um, she decided that uh, we needed to do more as a university uh, for, the, for the students. And one of those was bringing in um, Ibram Kendi, um, which I think a, a lot of you know, um, he started the um, Anti-Racist uh, Research and Policy Center, 
um, which was extremely helpful. And I, and I think that's uh, just one of those areas from the educational standpoint. Plus there were some other things that we, we've been doing um, uh, at the university um, to help those students, particularly black students, um, kind of work there and navigate their way through. Um, but for me personally, it was good uh, as a black woman on, on our campus when we the incident happened, we did not hear from our, at that time, our current president. And so a lot of us got together and, and kind of figured out or formed a, a letter to the administration saying, hey, something needs to be done. I mean, you know, we just can't just talk to ourselves. We need a statement or something from the university. And with our current president, um, she was very courageous and, and without having a, uh, any um, particular global statement from the university came up from her heart to, to say how this really hurt her. So um, that's one of the, the, the great things that, at my university that we, have, we were actually able to uh, have action that came out of what had gone on and, and we continue to have that um, today. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's what, we, uh, what we've been doing. Awesome, Jocelyn, thank you. Mo, I'm gonna throw it over to you. Can you give us some insight on this question? Uh, absolutely, thank you. Um, while Jocelyn took it from kind of the, the bigger institutional look, I wanted to share a little bit more about um, individual conversations. Um, I think it's very difficult to think that you're just gonna spring into these conversations easily because the truth is, there's a whole lot of people who are very diff very uncomfortable talking about race and racism. Um, so I think there's a lot of pre-work that needs to be done. Um, the first thing is building a foundation of trust. You can't really expect to have meaningful conversations about difficult issues unless you're with somebody who they know that they trust you and you know that you can trust them. So the responsibility is on the person initiating the conversation to try to you know, build that foundation. I also think it means doing your own work in terms of getting educated about the issue. And when I say that, I'm mostly speaking about other white people. Um, it's nobody else's responsibility to get us educated about all the problems that have gone in on the past. Um, there's a ton of resources available. We do not need to be asking our black friends how we are going to get educated on this issue. We can do that on our own. Um, when we're having the conversations, we need to make a commitment to listen more than we talk, um, but we also need to make a commitment to really recognizing and affirming the other person's experiences and the other people's experiences. And I think in particular, that's been very hard for people, just people overall, that if they don't experience it themselves, they don't get it. And we really need to try hard um, to get over that barrier so that we can better understand, have empathy and compassion and really listen to people. And when they say, this is how they're feeling and this is what they're experiencing, we need to, to believe them. Um, the other thing we need to do is make a commitment to understand and acknowledge that there are structural problems. So even though there are individual problems out there, there are certainly a lot of racist people. The underlying system is, is set up to function the exact way it is functioning, which is to be racist and it's working very well, which is not a good thing. Um, on that last two point, I think it's important for me, um, for myself, just to point out, I, I am white um, and I am not personally responsible for creating these discriminatory systems that have given me advantage my entire life. I think part of the problem is when white people hear um, about these, these situations, they feel like they're personally being blamed for them and that's not the case. However, 
if as a white person, I am not actively working to dismantle those systems, then I am complicit. And I think if we really wanna have meaningful conversations, we have to acknowledge our role. And I think in the past, we've perhaps been sympathetic, but not active enough in creating anti-racist systems. And it's not enough, we need to do more. And so when we talk about having those meaningful conversations, we have to be very clear about where we stand, what we believe, and that we wanna be active in doing that. So um, the other thing is really quickly, don't wait for big events to happen before you talk about it. If you are, if we are really devoted to equity and social justice, these kind of conversations happen throughout all of our lives. We should be asking not just our black students and indigenous students and other students of color, but do they feel a sense of belonging? Do they feel that we value them and respect them? Are our policies and systems within even our department set up to give everybody a fair experience? And if not, how can we change them to make that better? I think sometimes asking those questions is a neutral way to introduce the topic and to really look at the evidence and make changes so that people have more equitable experience. Um, other than that, when we're talking to white people, I think we need to be a whole lot pushier. When we're talking to black people, it's listen, 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 and learn. We're talking to white people, don't just listen. That's when we're, we need, you know, we need to advocate. We need to be very um, challenging with each other. We need to acknowledge the structural problems and we need to actively talk about how to use our privilege to get rid of it. That's great, Mel. Thank you, I appreciate that very much. Um, Myra, would you mind speaking to this question and giving us some insight? Sure, first, Heather, let me say thank you to not only you, but to Campus Rec Magazine for, for pulling this off. Uh, definitely some vital conversations that need to be had and very, very timely, so much appreciative and definitely thank you to all the panelists that are here. Uh, having said that, I'm not going to speak long because between Jocelyn and Mo, uh, we did have that ditto moment that we spoke of earlier. But I just want to highlight a, a, a couple of things. And from my perspective, it comes from being the only. And what I mean by that, not only in my professional setting, but also with a variety of friends, I am the only in that mix. So my conversations center around being that that black man, that that black guy, and trying to have those intentional conversations. So my first comment uh, with regard uh, to the subject matter is, you have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable, and and you have to understand, as Mo said, these are going to be tough conversations, but they're dynamic conversations that need uh, to take place, and you need to be able to listen and hear. Uh, I was on a call earlier today where a couple of younger uh, black colleagues were frustrated because the conversation turned into arguments and you can't come from that perspective. You can't try to defend your whiteness or your privilege. And I know that's a hard thing to say and a harder thing to hear, but it's not about that. It's about coming to a moment where change needs to occur both personally, professionally, and in the systems that you're involved in uh, right now. Uh, the other thing is both people in the conversation have to find the ability to find their voice in a manner that is conducive to, to learning. So uh, I have a colleague who's fond of saying, I'll meet you where you are. 
right? And so we all come from different platforms. We all come from different perspectives. But if we can meet in the middle and, and have some decency about it and be intentional, then that's a long way, that goes a long way in fighting this battle. Uh, I heard a phrase just yesterday. Uh, someone said, you have to be an ear hustler. And I kind of laughed and chuckled at it. But if you actually hear it, it makes sense. You have to be able to listen. You have to be able to follow those comments and those statements. And you have to be willing to ask the next hard question. And, and sometimes the dynamics of getting into Black Lives Matters versus All Lives Matters versus Policemen Matter. That you, don't, you can't let the conversation devolve into that. We are in a moment where dialogue needs to take place. It needs to be constructive. It needs to be intentional. It needs to be understood. And we need to handle it in such a way where we can get to whatever that next step is and where that next step needs to be. Yeah, I think I think across the board of our three panelists, listen, listening was a key word, I think, initiating those conversations. Awesome. Thank you all. Thank you all for that. Um, we're going to move on to our next question, uh, specifically dealing with allies. How do you define ally on your campus? What does it mean? How do you exhibit it? I guess that's three questions put into one. So, uh, Vicki, would you mind just going ahead and jumping in and, and sharing with us your thoughts? Oh, we can't hear you. Wasn't that one of the directions we had? Take yourself off mute. Um, I think, you know, the, the cool thing right now for me is that I can sit with a group of people such as this group um, and call them friends and colleagues and um, have these kinds of conversations. So I appreciate the comments by all of the three of you. Um, but as a white female, I can't relate to all those experiences that you have as black friends and colleagues. And also as a white female, I know that I have to do better, be better, listen better, do that work, um, you know, like reading and articles and books and listening to web, web webinars, podcasts, whatever. Um, but more importantly, have these discussions and willing to be, as Myram said, willing to be uncomfortable at times uh, in my willingness to keep learning. Um, rather than expecting you all to, you know, Mo, Mo mentioned this too, to be my teacher, it's my responsibility to be the one that, that takes the step to learn and be willing to acknowledge not only my white privilege, but my other implicit biases that I may have, maybe based on my privilege, maybe based on my upbringing, whatever that is, and continue to acknowledge the fact that I need to keep learning. I think the consistency around my behavior and or anyone's behavior that's talking about being you know wanting to be in an allyship um, is you know is a push, position that um, helps them consider are you behaving in a way that others would consider you an, an ally. I don't decide if I'm your ally. So we had this conversation earlier. You know, I I, I might say, oh, I'm Myron's ally. Well, I don't make that decision. Myron makes that decision on how I respond and react to him. And we talked a little bit about relationships of trust and, you know, pre-work that we have to do. That's what determines whether or not someone considers you an ally. And I think that my friends and colleagues, you know, have to determine that uh, based on how I behave and the pre-work, as Mo mentioned, that I've done. So I'm, I'm not always so sure that I want the label of ally because I'm not always uh, certain that saying ally means um, active ally. 
And I want to be that active ally, not that performative ally. And, you know, a performative ally, of course, we all know is that one that is just an ally when it's um, comfortable or convenient for you. I want to be involved in the action that comes forward to make some of the changes that we see need to be made, those kinds of things. So if you're fortunate enough to even consider, be considered to be an ally by someone, you need to do what the work that you need to do in order to stop things. And that oftentimes means I'm uncomfortable. Um, I think the phrase, when you stop learning, you stop, is the phrase that I always think about in terms of why we're having these battles right now um, and not looking at things like diversity, you know, having that seat at the table, that inclusion where your seat is actually having a voice in the conversation. And then, of course, that belonging where there's actually action being taken because you had a voice at the table. And so I think my responsibility as an advocate for what's right um, and being considered to be called an ally um, is all about my work that I have to do and the acknowledgement that I have to make. So I think I'm learning each day to be a better ally. Uh, whether or not someone considers me an ally is not, you know, is not something that I can assign. Um, but I, I really think that if we aren't willing to put, as Mo said, the pre-work into it, that being an ally is just a word. It's not, it's not an action. And that's, a, that's what I think that we need to see more of on our campuses. Thank you, Vicki. That was wonderful. Uh, great, great stuff. Appreciate that. Jocelyn, would you mind giving us your thoughts on this question? Well, it's interesting. You know, I did have a, a one air way by which I wanted to answer this question. Of course, Vicki <clears throat> uh, answered some of that. Uh, but then I started writing some notes to myself that that kind of came came to me. Um, one of those is the issue for um, our white counterparts about this doesn't affect me. So why should I, you know, really get involved in care? And I'm like, well, that's not the response. That's not the response that's going to help us get uh, uh, move forward. Um, you know, it, there are a lot of things that don't affect me, right? But um, they, I do know that they affect other people and I try and make a conscious decision uh, to, to want to do something about, about that. Um, and so that brings me back to my other point about unconscious bias. I know it's difficult for um, our white counterparts um, to sit and, and say, we're gonna have a diversity training or we're gonna do this and, and whatever. But really what it's about is your unconscious bias about how you treat people and how you deal with people and, and how that um, helps you to engage. And so to me, that is an area that really needs to be looked at to help folks um, to really to kind of delve into that a little bit more. I did that in a leadership um, group I was a part of a few years back, and it really helped me with my own unconscious bias with, with other types of people. Uh, and so it made me really rethink about um, how I approach folks and, and how I treat people and how I do things and how I look at things, even with our students. Um, so I, I, I kind of introducing that uh, into my own um, department is, is an, an area for our staff and faculty, but also for, for the students as well. So um, yeah, that's, uh, you know, again, no, no more than what Vicki has already had, had talked about, but um, definitely the unconscious bias, I think, needs to be addressed. Yeah, I, I like that you said, um, this doesn't affect me, is not going to help. Uh, that's, I think that's a really good point. Um, awesome, Jocelyn, thank you. Kevin, would you mind going ahead and sharing a, uh, your perspective on this question? 
Certainly. First of all, let me uh, say thank you to uh, the group for allowing me to be part of this. I know this is geared towards campus recreation and I don't necessarily work primarily in that venue right now, but this is my family. And so I always love the opportunity to come back and, and to, to visit with and, and to share with uh, with the group. A couple of things. I think um, Vicki and, 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 and Jocelyn and even Mo in her first response hit on some of the more, uh, most important points in terms of making sure that if you're going to be considered an which is a label, right? And right now, what we're hearing from people more than anything else, and I consider Mo and, and, and Vicky to be allies, but not because they say they want to be allies, but it's because of we, we develop relationships. We have a relationship that was born out of, not out of crisis, but in, in, in the times before. So I know where they stand, and I know that I can depend on them. And I also know that the two things I would add is that, one, they're not necessarily going to go running down the street with the banner in hand. They're not going to take the lead unless we ask to take the lead, them to take the lead. They're going to do the things that they need to do to be prepared to understand the issue and, and the skill sets and the experiences that they have, how they can employ those or deploy those to help us address the issue. So I think it's important for allies to understand that it is not your role necessarily to fix or to jump to the lead, it is to be uh, uh, an ally, to be an assistant, to be a part of the solution going forward. The other piece of this is that allies should and have to understand that if there's an issue, when there's an issue, they can't co-op the time. In other words, they can't add other things that are similar or also need to be addressed at that particular time. If we're focusing on Black Lives Matter Let's talk about Black Lives Matter. Let's do what we need to do to fix the issues that are um, um, that Black Lives Matter is addressing. And we know that there are other issues, right? But if you're saying that you're going to be an ally in that area, then you've got to be willing to focus that. And you'll get some pushback because people are going to come back to you and say, well, all lives matter. Well, what about this cohort? Or what about this group of individuals? That's not what we're... That's not to me. That's not an ally. That's bringing your your bucket of issues into my space. And I'm I'm, I'm empathetic. I'm sympathetic, and all those kinds of things. But quite frankly, that's not uh, the best uh, uh, approach for for allies going forward. But I do think that what Mo said earlier about the relationship piece, and I think Vicky said, all of you have said that. You know, I use the analogy about the fireman. You don't want to meet the fireman when your house is on fire, right? You want to have that relationship there. I also believe that in, in, in policing, for example, if we went back to when I was a kid with policemen A walk beats and B worked in the communities that they lived in, there, there's, a, there's a relationship thing that, that helps some of those issues. I'm not trying to solve the policing problem. I'll let other people who have more experience in that, but I, I just think that there's some principles that we can learn there that work in any line of work that we have. Yeah, Kevin, thank you. I, I think you make an excellent point of we can only really focus on one issue at a time. <laughs> there is plenty of issues in this world. And if we try to focus on too many, nothing's going to get done. So and I love what you said even about um, it's not the allies role to fix it's to have them come along and advocate. I love that. Uh, Mo, would you would you be able to bring this question home for us? Yes, I have only one thing that's new and different um, because they, they covered so many really good points. And that is, I think it's important to recognize that higher ed right now is under incredible pressure. Not only our departments, but higher ed in general. 
um, at my institution in particular, and in the state of Illinois, declining birth rates already put our institution in some precarious financial positions. And then COVID comes around and you're in even more precarious financial position. And I think we can all recognize that building anti-racist systems, it's gonna take significant resources, resources that most institutions do not have right now. Um, but here's the thing about being an ally, this can't wait. It, it's, it's waited hundreds of years. We, we can't just keep putting this on the back burner. And as allies, we need to insist that it has to, continue to be a priority. Um, one way of looking around all of this COVID is it may be a tremendous opportunity to rethink how we get our work done. And I think it's important to prove or to, to mention that we proved that we can be nimble in our reaction to COVID. And while the tendency would be to say, we can't do this now, it's too hard, it'll never happen. It turns out we're pretty good at turning we can't do it into we have to do it and just getting it done. So I think it's just important to reframe that a little bit and ask some of our most important work right now in the current climate will be insisting that this has to stay on the front burner. Yeah. Excellent, excellent points all around you all. Thank you very much. Uh, we're going to move on to our last predetermined question, then we'll open up to the floor. We've already got some stuff coming in. Uh, what are some practical things you do on campus, um, i.e. trainings, partnering with cultural centers, et cetera? And Vicki, I have you up and ready to answer. Answer with your microphone off, right? Um, <laughs> you know, I get so entrenched in listening to the conversation that I forget about that. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of different things that can happen. I think your student-led um, uh, activities are really vital um, and vital to the point where um, the staff and the faculty jump on and be a part of it. I think sometimes we get into situations where the students um, do have activities and then they don't see any of their administrative folks being a part of it and then they're saying, well, where is this going to go? And so I think it's really important that the campus as a whole uh, locks into that. A couple of years ago, we had an incident and out of that came a very um, wonderful student-led, it, uh, it was entitled uh, Hate Never Wins. We had shirts, we, for, you know, uh, and people still now on Wednesdays is the t-shirt day where people will wear those shirts and remind people um, that this hasn't gone away, that we still have to have conversations about it. Um, worked with a group of, of other staff and faculty who created um, a deck of cards is what it was, but it was all around the kind of the title of it was called um, Dying Dialogue and Pass It On. And as we know, a lot of times our dialogues are around food. So we would center, center that around a meal and we would have conversations, but the cards were made so that there were um, kind of less um, confrontational at some point, but also less intense kinds of questions that you'd start off with and then you'd work your way up. Some of those were things like, talk about a time when you've been stereotyped. You know, that's a pretty generic question, but then you get into, talk about um, when you come to the university, what has been an experience that opened your mind to an identity that was different from you? Um, why are conversations about diversity important? Why do people think, say racist, homophobic and discriminatory things? 
Um, you know, what are your thoughts around some black people using the N-word with each other? You know, so they, they tend to kind of build in their intensity or maybe their uncomfortable ability to uh, have the conversation, but really found um, working with smaller groups of students, knowing that, again, we're a, I'm on a predominantly white in, uh, campus, and, and so um, some of those discriminatory kinds of things that go on are just based on lack of experiences with real world kinds of things. And so when you sit down with a group of students and you start asking these questions, all of a sudden they're thinking about things differently and they're having conversations with each other that um, they're learning and gathering information so that they can then go forward and maybe have their minds changed. Um, I love it when somebody says, you know what, I never thought of it that way. And then the conversation goes forward in a more positive way. We also have an event that we do. Uh, our Oasis group is wonderful. They, um, every Tuesday at noon, they call, have an event called Dish It Up and they bring topics to the table and people are discussing. And since we've gone virtual with this, last time I think there were probably between two and 300 people that were on the line um, listening to conversations around this. And they usually have, sometimes they have a speaker come in, sometimes it's a topic and they break into groups, um, which you know I guess is the cool thing about Zoom or whatever apparatus you're using where you can break into groups and meet new people and have discussions with people maybe that you haven't had discussions with. Um, we're doing a book club. Uh, Jocelyn mentioned uh, Kendi's book, you know, Anti-Racist. We're doing a book club of several staff and faculty across the campus um, around that, having discussions around that, roundtables. Um, the other thing we do with our student groups is we do things like bystander intervention, you know, those kinds of things and, and bring topics into that that are very real to our campus. And so I think there's a lot of things you can do. We have an outstanding diversity and inclusion department on our campus, and they are so willing to uh, have conversations and help us be better um, at what we're doing with our student population and around diversity and inclusion. So I feel very fortunate that we are in a position that we have um, those resources right on campus, but you, there's just, there's so much off of campus, out of campus, from your other colleagues, too, that you can bring into these discussions. I just think that it's not a one-off. Somebody said that earlier. This is not a one-time big event. This is something that we want to keep in front of all of us, not just our students, not just our staff and faculty, but all of us on a regular basis because um, we got a long way to go. Yeah, Vicki, thank you for that. I, I love the cards that you you all have and the prompts and the, I mean that gets into some serious conversation but what a great way to start that kind of stuff so that's awesome thank you for that Kevin, you go ahead. they get what they get right I'm like <laughs> I need a pair so I can bring it to the next party I go to and I'm kind of like let's have real conversation honestly because sometimes you can just talk about nothing and why talk about nothing when we can talk about things that are really going to matter and make an impact so I love the cards I really do um, awesome, Kevin. Can you go ahead and give us some insight on this question from your point of view? Yeah, so I, I will go from uh, two two uh, perspectives. The first is on a very practical level, on an individual basis, in terms of you know really focusing on your space, your garden, so to speak, what you can do and what you should be doing to make sure that when black students come to your space, take advantage of your programs, your activities and the like, that the barriers that they see in other places on campus don't exist. And it means asking yourself really uh, tough questions, but it also means having conversations with black students to say to them, what 
prevents you from taking advantage of our spaces or whatever. Uh, I think the other thing that you want to make sure that you do is, um, as you identify those barriers, follow back up. You know, here's how we are t uh, approaching or attacking those issues or whatever. So it's not just a conversation, but there is some um, follow back, follow through, and then subsequently some accountability to, uh, to determine whether those steps that you take actually have the intended uh, uh, intended responses. On our campus, we um, about five years ago got uh, a list of demands from black students about uh, 12 different things that they thought were preventing them from being successful. And uh, it's timely because um, we've gotten through about a third of those uh, uh, opportunities that we've completed. About half of them are you know, well on their way. But what has happened now with, with uh, this most recent uh, attention on things. It's kind of given us an opportunity to kind of revisit and update in some ways um, some of the things that are on those on that list of, of, of things to do. And, and because there's so much attention, as an example, we had one of the things they had on the list was renaming some of the buildings that had names of individuals who were associated with racist tendencies or racist activity and the like. And because of what's happened, our board of trustees, our president, our board of trustees called an emergency meeting just this past week and renamed a building. That, that, that kind of thing doesn't happen really quickly, but here's, here was an opportunity for our administration to do something, not just talk about something, but actually do something. And so I give them um, some kudos for that, but that's, it can't stop that. There's, there's more work that needs to be done. The, the last thing I would, I would add is, is we are, I think Vicki mentioned this, uh, as much as we can to get students to lead, you know, uh, a lot of this work. Um, we had a campaign a few years back called the 9-5 campaign, the 9-5 code, and 9-5 is um, the first two digits of our student ID and, and faculty staff ID numbers. And what we did was trying to build a culture around the one thing that we all have, which is that student ID, that faculty ID. So we're thinking that we may revisit that this year, but the topic being anti-racism. And how does how do we combat that? Because if our students lead that, it doesn't come across as a directive or um, people feeling guilty or check the box or whatever. It is a way for us to really pull the community together and, and behind something that is important to our students, important to all of us, but particularly important to our students in terms of safety and feeling good about being at the University of Oregon. Yeah, awesome, Kevin. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, insight. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's good. Um, and then Myram, could you go ahead and just finish us out on uh, answering this question? Absolutely. Uh, first, I think, do you have buy-in from upper administration? So is your chancellor, is your VP, is your president, whatever descriptor you want to use, are they involved and are they engaged? Uh, not only from a practical standpoint, but from an emotional standpoint. Uh, are you a gatekeeper? Or are you actually holding the gate open, making it an open, welcome atmosphere for all at your campus? Uh, your hiring practices. When is the last time, other than outside of HR, have you actually taken a critical look at your hiring practices? And a, a prime example would be if we all go back to our specific units on our campus, how many people there look like me? And, and, and I can understand sometimes that's a daunting task, but I, I had a recent engagement with a parent 
And I'm so used to being the one and that it's not new to me. But she pointed out that, did you realize you are the only black administrator, not in our department, but at our school? And I'm like, no, that's not true. And she's like, no, yeah, it is. And so I'm so oblivious to it throughout my career that I actually went back and looked because we do the, you know, the big gigantic group picture before the school starts. Here's Mr. Washington White and here's Mr. Jones and, you know, Miss Smith and da, 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 da. And I'm like, wow, I'm the only black speck there. So are you engaged in definitively looking at how you hire professional career staff uh, in your setting? Uh, uh, do you have identity units on your campus? And I'm not necessarily just talking about uh, ethnic cultural groups. Have people self-identified and grouped? And are you aware of what those groupings are and what their needs are? And do you specifically go out and try and engage and figure out how I can make this a better situation from you at my university? And I apologize because I'm looking at my notes here because I want to make sure I don't miss anything. Uh, and then from a practical standpoint, is there dedicated training and not just to diversity? but to all the culturally identified units on your campus. And is that training consistent? And is it more than that? We've all been to those trainings where someone decides, yep, we need to do this. Okay, here's 30 minutes. Really? Really, right? And then obviously your career staff and your student staff realize you're being disingenuous because you cannot carve out 30 minutes, 30 minutes of space to talk about equity, inclusion, diversity, cultural awareness. It's impossible. And then if you take that a step up, when we go to these various uh, association meetings, symposiums and seminars, it's the same cookie cutter layout, right? And these are situations and scenario where you have to carve out multi-session events to get the actual training that you need. And it can't be a Myron Washington White leading that initiative, right? It has to be the identified experts that can come in and walk you through the process. So when you look at your school and you look at your administration and these things aren't out there for you to take advantage of, your first question becomes, how committed are you to this? How committed, even in this setting, these last few weeks, and, and I appreciate Mo and I appreciate Vicky because they were one of the first people to reach out to me directly. How you doing? What can I do for you? What do you need, right? And I know them well enough to know that they were being genuine. They were coming from a service heart, right? As opposed to other allies, you know, in, in my professional setting that are not walking the walk. They're talking the talk and it's, it, it doesn't mean anything. Uh, and then last two points, your, your campus police, are they being taken through those sensitivity type trainings that they need to have to engage with all of the students of any complexion, of any race, of any ethnicity on your campus or as we've heard recently, is your police department weaponized? 
So their response is from a different perspective, from a different mindset. So those are the types of things as college campuses, as university campuses that we need to look at and then be aware of. And then the last thing, do you have your community involved? So in other words, past that, and we have a, a great basketball team. We have a horseshit football team, but people still come out, right? And the stadium is packed to capacity. You can't get on campus. So there's that involvement. But are they involved in the actual incidents and elements that we need to have their voice with those situations to help us navigate what's going on? Because we're part of the community. Do we have those scenarios where we can engage them and they help us develop a strategy or a game plan to move this thing forward? Okay, yeah. can, I add, can I add one thing to, to what Myron said? You know, I, I've, I've, been, I've been around long enough that not only am I very often the only, uh, in some cases I'm the first, which is amazing to me in 2020 that I'm the first and, and, and I, I would imagine some of us uh, black folks experience that as well. And what that speaks to is not only the hiring of individuals, but the retention of individuals. Because what we experience in, in many of the places that I've been is that our numbers seem to stay the same or maybe increase slightly, but it's not because we're retaining, it's because we have a revolving door. One in, one out one in, one out. And so what we've got to be thinking about in addition to how do we increase the numbers, how do we get more people, how do we find those individuals, how do we keep them? And, and what, 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 what do they need to be successful in the environment and with, with, within which they work? And that's students as well. You know, when you have student employees in, in, in our rec centers, and I think we do a pretty good job of it in the rec center, uh, in, in our rec centers around the country, of not only hiring and trying to figure out ways to retain, but find, finding ways to improve or uh, promote, be promoted. If there's undergraduate student, we're trying to push them towards graduate assistantships and things, that, other things that are going to help their career. But we need to be doing that not only for our students, but our, our staff too. We need to figure out ways to make sure that when you come into that environment, it's an environment that you feel good enough that you can stay alive and that you would feel good about inviting other people to join as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you all. Thank you for that. And uh, we do have some questions from our audience and we are quickly running out of time. Um, but kind of off of what Kevin was saying, uh, we did get a question of, um, you know, how would you recruit, attract, encourage students of color to apply to campus rec employment in, in a predominantly white school, given that the environment's given that the environment is ready to support them um, and not tokenize them. Can anyone speak to that in terms of recruiting, attracting, encouraging students of color to apply? Well, I think at Nebraska, you know, we, we have access to some really quality um, groups of people through our RSOs and through our OASIS um, organization, our multicultural center, those places. And I think we have to be actively engaged in going there and talking about the opportunities, as well as we do that with our new student enrollment when we're talking to the parents, of course, who want their children working, helping them pay their way. Um, but we, you know, in talking to the parents in the parent sessions, as well as uh, the students as they make sure that your facility is a place 
well, I don't know, sometimes you can't, you don't have control over that, but make sure your facility is a place where the students are walking through when they're coming on campus for NSE and you're having the opportunity to talk to them about different uh, students that they see working and things like that. So I think it's ex exposure to the information as well as you as, as a staff person need to go and go to them or go to those places or go to those organizations and be actively engaged that way. I don't think you just expect people to know you're there and that they're going to come to you. Yeah. Awesome. Thank, thank you, Vicki. And then I did have another question, uh, a couple of other questions involving upper administration. So it's, it's, it's I'm going to do a two part here. Um, but it was the question was, you know, once you've done the listening to your black students and you've started to work on creating systematic change, you take it to upper administration, but you hit roadblocks. How do you communicate that to them that, hey, we, we heard you, we're working on this, you know, we're trying to make that change. And yet there is higher administration and things beyond maybe just what you can do. How, how do you all handle working with and addressing um, working with upper administration as well as addressing and uh, letting students know what's being done. You, you really have to be transparent and explain the process. They don't have to like the process, but there are processes in place and there are steps, baby and otherwise, that need to be taken. So the first part of that is when you're having that engagement and that dialogue with those students, okay, and we all know, especially nowadays, our students want to throw the grenade and make it happen instantly. And that's not, especially in a collegiate setting, it, it doesn't work that way, right? There are layers that you have to, 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 to get through and step through. So first, you got to explain to them what that process looks like. And then next, whoever that upper administration is, you got to make them understand this is coming. This is what it's going to look like. These are the definitive steps I have taken with, with, with regard to this engagement. And then here is the, the platform, the, the treaty, the, the manifesto, whatever they've given to me. And I've identified some ways that we can make this work. It can't be a scenario where you, you come up with a document, you drop it on your VP's desk and say, fix it, make it happen, right? Any VP worth their salt, and I think Kevin would agree with this, when you come, you got to have some actionable items to be able to point me as an administrator in a direction, right? And then you have to make the student staff, the students know, okay, again, process, okay, here are some timelines I think that are reasonable. Here are some timelines that I think the VP has agreed to, and then we're going to walk it through. And then you just, as the administrator, and I'm being long-winded here, I apologize, you just can't walk away, right? I got to be in Kevin's office, maybe not every day, but at least once a week or, or once or once every two weeks. Where are we? How can I help you move this along? Where the case may be and make it work? What I found over the process of my career is most senior level administrators are amenable to things happen. You just got to give them the plan and then get them to buy in and then go from there. So so as that individual who you want to drop stuff on my desk, 
I will tell you a couple of things. One, you're right. You, you need to know your audience. You know, every every senior level administrator is not the same, right? We, we all have our, uh, our skill sets. We all have our points of view. We all have different things that we are um, um, taking care of. So know who you're talking to and know the scope of their power or their influence and then who else you may need to bring into that conversation so that that administrator is not out, you know, on, on a, on a, a spot by themselves. The, the second thing is, and I tell my folks this all the time, when you bring me something, expect that I'm saying no. So in other words, think about what I'm going to say no to and fix that. So when I say the no, you can come right back with the response. We don't have to have two or three meetings to get to the point that you want us to get to. And then the third thing I think is, and this, Mo brought this up earlier, this thing about COVID has really pointed out to us as higher ed that we have got to change. We have got to change the model of higher education in, in, in the United States. And so more than any other time, we are probably more uh, um, accepting of or open to things that are gonna help us move forward. So this is the time to have those well thought out plans, those well thought out initiatives and put them in front of folks because COVID came at a time where none of us obviously were prepared for and none of us knew how to fix this. And so we're learning right along with you who are actually doing the work uh, on the ground. Help us to be better because we, we trust you. You know, that's, you know, Crystal likes to talk about brains around the table. The more brains we have around the table, the better we will be at addressing some of the issues that we are uh, we're facing right now. The last thing I would add into that real quickly is that if you can have that conversation with your vice president or your president with students sitting with you, that brings so much more um, capital to the conversation. So this is not you thinking on behalf or talking on behalf of the people that we're serving. This is you speaking in conjunction and collaboration with those individuals. Yeah, thank you both. That, that's, that's some really good stuff. Um, another question. As Mo said, there are a lot of resources to educate white people, but it can be tricky about what are good resources that aren't teaching you bad verbiage, bad education, et cetera. Do you have any recommendations for resources that would be stamped with approval from Black Lives Matter specifically to leading these conversations with students programming, et cetera? Let me throw something out real quick. We're not all starting from the same point. Okay, so I, that's a that's a tough question because I can say, "Ooh, read this book," but you as an individual may be past where that book is or whatever. And so, you know, I go back to the analogy one of my folks used about um, baking a cheesecake. You know how much you know about baking a cheesecake, and then you go find the information you need and the resources you need to make that happen. That might be different from how the next person does that. I, I would love to say, here, read this book, watch this webinar, talk to this person, you're ready. I, I don't think that that's, the, that that's the solution. I think each individual knows where they start. And, and I know it's not necessarily answering the question, but the reality of it is, I, I, I could give you something, but that may not work for you. And I do, I, I wish I had the resource handy. I don't remember where it was, but I, I did see something that was a, um, kind of a segmented and it said, if this is where you're at, here are some good resources. And it had at least three, if not four stages. And, and it was aimed at white people, but it was stages of where you're at and your level of understanding. And based on that, it made recommendations of where you should start. 
I don't remember it offhand, but my guess is that a search engine would come up with it. If, if I could interject real quickly, there is actually the uh, Association of American Colleges and Universities has a great uh, uh, page within their website that speaks to uh, uh, diversity training, diversity awareness, and managing those types of things. There are a number of click-throughs that would certainly address and answer a lot of those questions with regards to meeting you where you are. So I would definitely try that as a resource. Uh, thanks, you all. Um, the association was the American Colleges and University Association. Is that correct, Myra? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, someone asked for a clarification. Great. Um, and Mo, maybe we'll have to find that and we can post that on, on the site with this post or something. That sounds like a great resource. Uh, another question. Oh, we, someone else just said the NERSA EDI guide is a great place to start as well. So check that out for sure. Um, another question from an uh, audience member. We just started an EDI committee in our department. Do you all have any tips or insight as to how to get it off the ground and running? <laughs> That's a big question. <laughs> oh my goodness. Go for it, Rosalyn. Go for it. The only thing I would say is make sure that those folks who um, are a part of that committee are a part of that committee by choice um, because it's it's a long haul when you got when people are assigning people um, for whatever reason and they're really that's not really where they want or can be. Um, I think it, it it's a struggle. I, I don't I won't say that you don't include those people at some level. But I'm not sure that initial committee that you're starting is where that should be. That's just from my perspective. I I would say that um, you know you're, you need to start probably uh, on your university's values um, and incorporate those into what you're trying to do as a committee, and then filter that down to what you want it to look like for your your department or your unit or whatever the case may be. And that's that's about as broad as I can get it because I don't there, I need more context to that question, um, but that's how I would start if I were you know in a in a um, a particular person's shoes on a certain level you know start with the university and then work your way uh, down to your level and then find out from your own department um, what its goals are um, as it relates to EDI. Right, and real quickly. Um, building off of what Jocelyn said in terms of determining what your work is going to be is that you need to determine where you want to end up, but in order to get there, you need to know where you're at. And so I think part of any group's work is going to kind of start with some sort of self-assessment in terms of we all know we want our students, all of our students, every subgroup imaginable to have a sense of belonging, to feel respected, to feel supported you know, a first step might be trying to find out if they are and are there populations that feel like they are and that's a good place to start in terms of feel, you know, determining where the gap analysis, but you got to know where you're at before you can get to where you're going. Heather, can I throw in just one additional thing? I think it's paramount that you ask the question, the why, what's the why in terms of taking this step? So, you'd be doing not only yourself, but your department a disservice if this is something that just appeared on somebody's evaluation or their program review as a check mark. 
because now you're just dealing with lift service. So what's the why? Let's define the why. Let's define who is actually engaged. And I know I've been using that word quite a, a bit, but who's engaged. And then that's going to inform what your forward movement is going to look like. Yeah. Awesome, y'all. Thank you. We probably have time for one more question. I know we won't get to everyone's questions. So I'm sorry about that. I, I'm gonna, I'm picking this one because it was interesting because we had talked about this. So it was speaking to Kevin's statement of who is responsible for picking, fixing this problem. Um, there is an ongoing discussion suggesting that allies should take the lead given that they have benefited most within the existing system. Curious what your all's thoughts are on that statement. You cannot have a person with a white hat and a white horse and a white outfit come in and be your white savior. Doesn't work that way. We've seen those silly movies where the white teacher comes in and fixes everything at the campus. The white coach comes in and fixes all the issues with the black team and they go on to win the championship and la da da, la da da, la da da. Does not work that way. And if you expect to, to, to throw that onto someone's plate and lean on them to fix this problem, you are at a wrong starting point. I love Vicky and I love Mo, but they cannot swing in to Tucson, Arizona and fix the issues at my school or at the University of Arizona or at Arizona State or NAU or Embry-Riddle or any, or it doesn't work that way, right? Yes, have the open engagement, yes have the open dialogue but it's a problem that's of everyone's making so you have to be intentional as a and i'll say black you have to be intentional as a black person to take ownership take the lead and do what you need to do to make it work now again i use the phrase lobbing a grenade Am I telling you to throw a stick of dynamite in your department and blow it up and start from scratch? Of course not. That does not work. But all of us have said you have to be intentional. You have to have a direction. It has to be meaningful. And then you need to move forward right in a manner that's going to get you to your end goal or your end result. Right. White saviors don't work in this. You know, and can I add to that? I, I agree with you, Myram. And I think there's a difference um, between saying that white people need to take ownership of the systemic problem because we as a group have not actively demanded that it change. It's a system that we've benefited from. And even though we didn't start it because we benefited from it and we haven't been actively trying to dismantle it, we need to take ownership of it. That does not mean that we're that that white people should be on the horse with the white hat trying to be the white savior, because clearly that won't work. But having people who benefit from the system pretending like they don't, pretending like it doesn't exist, it's going to be very difficult to get the changes that need to be made. And so I think um, for me, you know, some of it might be semantics, but I think. Um, I would advocate that that white people in general, but allies in specific, need to make sure we understand our role in perpetuating this problem and instead start to be active in changing it. 
I, I would just add sphere of, of influence, right? You do what you can do in your space mm -hmm. as long as it is contributing to the overall success. I mean, I, I agree that we don't need white saviors and the like, but there are some things that I, quite frankly, you're going to have to do because I don't have the access or, or, or influence in that particular, particular place. But be, again, be sure that what you're doing is contributing to resolving the problem. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you so much. We have officially run out of time. I like to keep us there. And so we can get on and, and get going. And um, I know people only have so much time before they're off for the weekend or meetings. Um, so thank you all so much to our panelists. We did get a lot of thank yous from you guys and the questions. Uh, everyone's very thankful for you guys taking your time today and, and answering the hard questions and starting the hard conversation, or I should say continuing the hard conversation. So thank you. And thank you to our audience. Again, it is, it's, we are doing this because you are here. You are here on a Friday afternoon listening. Um, and once more, if you are enjoying these roundtables, we have a lot more coming. Um, there's gonna be some more COVID-19 roundtables. We have our virtual summit in September 15th and 16th that you can register for. Uh, we are here to provide education to you, the campus rec recreation industry. So panelists, thank you. It's been a pleasure today. Um, to our audience, take this and apply it. Don't just listen, use it. So thank you all. Uh, I hope everyone has a great rest of their day.